Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. So, Deb, what's going on? What's going on? Welcome to April. I I know it's this the first of the month, so uh, ain't nothing going on but the rent. Uh, really, <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> is very th- that is very very true. Uh, no, but just really, really trying to keep sane in the midst of every all the craziness that's going on in like the social and political world. I, I feel like I'm reading the news every day, and I'm like asking myself, like, what? WTF. That's what I'm asking myself. Uh, So like one story, um, and I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a Chicago police officer who uh, was like monitoring a guy who was on like, he was, you know, chained to a bed on like suicide watch. And, you know, he was a suspect for some crime. And the police officer was accused of sucking his toes. What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> While he was restrained to the bed. Oh, and my God. I, like, I don't know why he thought he would get away with that. I mean, he did some other stuff, too. I'm, I'm not going to say what he did on air, but Google that, y'all. It's, it's crazy. See, see, we all, you know, we be talking about police officers in one way, and now here they go crossing boundaries once again. This is insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, uh did you read read about or see the very questionable Heineken commercial where a bartender, you know, he's at the bar, he takes a beer and he slides it past a bunch of black patrons. Uh, it eventually lands in front of what I perceive to be a white woman. She's very fair. Maybe she could be Latina. Um and after the beer lands in front of her, they flash a tagline that says, sometimes lighter is better. Oh, <laughs> Come on, Heineken. I, like, I mean, I mean, I don't drink Heineken anyway, but it's just like for real, you know, even Chance the Rapper, like he called it out. He, you know, he literally said that's racist and they, they pulled the ad. Come on. Um, like what? In this day and age, I just still don't understand how people let these these kind of ads slide. You know, it's ridiculous, man. Oh, my God. Like, how does it go through that many levels of approval? Oh, probably because there's not a lot of people that can say, like, flag on the play. Yeah. That's foul. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Another one, which which really upset me, is there was a black woman in Texas. Her name is Crystal Mason. Uh, she voted during the 2016 election. She was on community supervision for like a 2012 uh, conviction that she had. Uh, she didn't know she couldn't vote. Like her probation officer hadn't told her, like no one had told her that, you know, she wasn't eligible. And she cast a provisional ballot, which led to an investigation. And she was just sentenced to five years in prison for, you know, what she and her probation officer has labeled as an honest mistake. Oh, my God. Five years for voting? Yes. And like she literally she said, like, I will 
I will probably never vote again. Like she's like she's traumatized. Come on. Like what kind of system do we have in place where somebody is doing their, you know, citizen duties and then they didn't know they couldn't vote and then you're going to give them five years? Five years incarceration. Five years. Voting. Especially, and I mean, she also had the support of her probation officer, you know, who had, was like, you know, this was an honest mistake. Like, I didn't even talk to her about this. And, you know, which is like really unfortunate. So like, you know, my my prayers are going out to her. She is appealing that sentence and I, I hope it works out for her. Yeah, that is so sad. Hopefully, yeah, we can keep our eyes on that and everything goes smoothly. Definitely should be no jail time. Actually, nothing should happen. Just don't count the vote. You know, just don't count. And, for, and it wasn't to, counted. It wasn't even counted. Yeah, it was because they they figured they figured it out because they always, I guess, investigate or look into provisional ballots because her name wasn't on the list. So it was never. So although she cast the vote, it's not like it counted. Mm. It was never used to boost, you know, or count against, you know, either candidate. So mm, yeah, <sighs> do better, Texas. Um, do better. Um, and I guess the last biggest thing is I've been noticing a lot of articles and stories about fair housing um, or the lack thereof, affordable housing. Um, there's been some interesting proposals. For instance, Miami is considering building special housing just for teachers so that they could live, afford to live near the schools that they teach mm. in. Um, there's a company in Atlanta that is essentially thinking about building modern day like boarding houses or, or rooming houses. I, I can't remember the name of it. It was like split something. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, and another uh, thing that came out in relation to housing is that Wendell Pierce, uh, who played Bunk Moreland in The Wire, just announced that he is investing $20 million to build a mixed income apartment complex in Boston. Um, and like thinking about like the sum of these different ideas that all came out in the same week, the Miami um, idea, the Atlanta idea, and this thing in Baltimore, you know, they've received mixed reviews because some people question why we can't simply pay people more for affordable housing. And in regard to the Wendell Pierce uh, investment, they have questioned uh, his motives and whether that redevelopment would actually benefit lower income residents. Some, Some people have accused him of like trying to gentrify Boston. And, you know, he responded to that by saying that gentrification is, you know, the displacement of houses and businesses. And, you know, he isn't gentrifying because he's taking an empty um, and abandoned building and bringing it in as an asset to the community. And and for me, that just kind of highlighted, you know, it, it made me question, like, what is gentrification? Like, how how are we mm-hmm. defining it? Um, because even though he might not be displacing anyone, um, that development could bring in, you know, more developments that could displace people. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you, you know, when it comes to gentrification, and of course, particularly talking about the Black community, there's an extreme distaste for it, uh, distrust for it, um, a lot of things. And I feel a lot of it is based in truth. A lot of it is based from experience. A lot of it is based from our historical history, just historical actions of what happened to Black folk throughout their time in this country, of what we call America. Um, and so I think now, and even the conversation we're going to have today, 
with our guests highlighting gentrification. It's interesting because during the interview, I would say, and I'm not going to spoil it for you all. You guys should really, really listen because my idea of gentrification has always been along the lines of white invasion or rich white people invading lower income black communities, taking over these communities, raising property value, and then pushing the original residents of these communities out. And I think that's true and it happens a lot. But with many issues that we discuss and talk about and have, there's a lot of controversy over, it's rarely black and white. Um, And I think this is what I really appreciated about the interview today is that it really highlighted some of the hidden aspects and the nuance to gentrification. Um, And, you know, I got to say that this is something that, you know, personally, I've always kind of paid attention to. And I I have always been really even myself not trying to contribute to things like gentrification and being a part of that. But I think uh, it's 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 interesting. And, and, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about, too, is important. Or I'll mention now is that I was recently I know many of you who are listening have saw the movie Boys in the Hood and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the scene in there with, with Lawrence Fishburne talking about um, gentrification. Right. He pulls Cuba Good into the side. Um and uh, who who else who else was it? Uh, oh oh, uh, Morris Chestnut, Morris Chestnut. Yeah, I and you know, oh, yeah. and then he and yeah. the other community members come, and he's showing him a sign because he's trying to talk about what he does, and he's actually talking about gentrification and what happens and how it raises property value and pushes us out. Talks about crack cocaine, talks about uh, gun violence, all this kind of stuff. And that one very pivotal scene in the movie that might get overlooked because you know there's a lot of other things that happen in the movie. Which we, which makes it popular, mm-hmm. um, but it's important that you know. Even when I'm just thinking about how influential Black media has been, right? As far as addressing social commentary, uh, when we talk about things like Black Panther, we've talked about that in the past, and even more recent shows. You know, it was just a reminder. You know that that came out early '90s, I believe, or in the '90s, and still having that strong social commentary, talking about gentrification way back then. And we're still having these conversations now about gentrification in the Black community, too. I think what that example highlights is that gentrification happens in waves and it is sweeping, honestly, it's sweeping the nation now. And I, I feel like places like California, you know, especially with major ethnographic, ethno-racial demographic change in terms of like the influx of like Latinos also during that time. I I think what happened in California in the 90s, you know, is now hitting the South, is is now hitting just about every city that I can think of. Even my hometown of Chattanooga Mm -hmm. is experiencing gentrification. And it just goes to show like these processes, they start and then they kind of spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I I would say kind of like you, I've, I've always thought of it like very negatively. It's not, it's something I have always perceived as outsiders coming Mm -hmm. in to take. And I I don't know, in preparation for this interview, especially, uh, you know, reading some of the work of um, Dr. Freeman, who, you know, we're interviewing today, it has made me rethink some things. And and even thinking about, you know, what Wendell Pierce said about you know, his definition of gentrification, you know, it, it has me rethinking some things or rethinking mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of my assumptions and about I think, gentrification. You know, just pay attention during the interview as far as re we understand what gentrification is and we understand the negative stigma and connotation that come with it. And, mo- and many of those are warranted and are real. But I think as a community, 
and the people who are interested in this, I think we can also maybe begin to think of it in other ways. Are there ways that we mm -hmm. can use this kind of framework to, in fact, uplift and benefit particular communities, right? Is it always a tool of oppression or can it be a tool of, of uplift, right? And progression. So we'll, we'll see and we'll, I'm sure we'll uncover these hidden gems throughout the interview. So make sure y'all pay attention. All right, other than that, uh, we'll catch up with y'all after the interview. y'all take a look at that sign up there. See what it says? Cash for your home. You know what that is? It's Bill Billboard. What are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. To bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black. Black owned with black money. Just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans, and the Koreans do. Ain't nobody from outside bringing down the property value. It's these folk shooting each other and selling that crack rock and well, how you think the crack rock gets into the country? We don't own any planes. We don't own no ships. But we are not the people who are flying and floating that in here. I know every time you turn on the TV, that's what you see. Black people selling the rock, pushing the rock, pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem as long as it was here. It wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa and it showed up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. Now, if you want to talk about uh, guns, why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Tell you why. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that shit. But they want us to kill ourselves. Yeah, the best way you can destroy a people, you take away their ability to reproduce themselves. Who is it that's dying out here on these streets every night? Y'all. Yeah. Young brothers like yourselves. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? I'm gonna shoot the mother if he don't kill me first. You're doing exactly what they want you to do. You have to think, young brother, about your future. Huh? Gentrification is a racially and emotionally charged topic, generally described as a process that results in the displacement of economically disadvantaged people of color. Gentrification has taken on a negative connotation, but is the negative perception of gentrification merited? Is it always a bad thing? Are there ways to responsibly invest in economically depressed neighborhoods? Today, we tackle these questions with Dr. Lance Freeman, a professor in the urban planning program at Columbia Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation. As an expert on affordable housing, gentrification, and ethnic and racial stratification in housing markets, Dr. Freeman will help us to better understand the myths, misconception, and realities of gentrification. We welcome Dr. Lance Freeman. So to get started, we generally like to ask our guests to give a little bit of background and information of yourself and tell the listeners who you are and kind of how did you get interested in this research area and topic? 
Sure. So I uh, I grew up in New York City. I am uh, Queens native. I grew up in New York, came of age in the uh, late 70s and mostly in the 80s. And uh, the city at that time was very different um, than it is now. Like a lot of older northeastern cities, its uh, manufacturing industries were shrinking dramatically. Uh, it was still experiencing significant white flight and overall population decline. Um, African-Americans too were, were, were beginning to leave some of the, um, you know, the long standing black neighborhoods from the early 20th century, like Harlem or, or Bedford-Stuyvesant. Um, the city was experiencing a lot of uh, abandonment in terms of buildings. Um, crime was at a much higher rate than it is now. And, uh, you know, so growing up through that experience, um, I got, I became interested in what was driving these changes in the city, you know, and uh, it was also very obvious that, you know, neighborhoods inhabited by predominantly people of color tended to be in worse shape than uh, predominantly white neighborhoods. So I was uh, curious about why that was and, and, and also even why you had, you know, such segregated neighborhoods in, in the first place, since by that time, housing discrimination was supposed to be illegal. And so that was got, what got me interested in urban planning as a profession, because it seemed like a profession that would you know, help me understand what was going on and in, in the city and also think about you know, ways to address those issues. And uh, so ultimately, I left New York to go to graduate school, I went to graduate school in Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, and I came back. Uh, I made a few stops along the way, worked in Washington, D.C. Um, but I came back, um, by, by the time I came back to New York, um, around the turn of the century, the um, many na neighborhoods were starting to experiencing very noticeable gentrification, um, particularly neighborhoods like Harlem. So where I work, Columbia University is just adjacent to Harlem and I was living in that area. So I, you know, I was you know, somewhat familiar with Harlem having relatives who lived there um, for a while. And then, you know, so coming back to New York City around the turn of the century and you know, walking around in Harlem, seeing the changes, dramatic changes, um, you know, notice, you know, well, perhaps most notably, you know, you start to see more whites in the neighborhood. You start to see uh, more upscale stores of the type that you only would see downtown in, in prior years. And so that's what got me interested in, in studying the topic um, from a scholarly perspective, uh, by this time I had received my graduate degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I was a professor at Columbia University, and that's what got me interested in studying the topic. Cool. I always appreciate when academic research is motivated by someone's actual experiences with a topic. So that was really cool to hear. In thinking about the topic of gentrification, I was wondering if we could take a step back and actually define what the term means. Um, what is gentrification? So, uh, gentrification, uh, I guess the broadest definition would be one whereby you have a, an, typically an older neighborhood that's inhabited by relatively poor households um, and perhaps in the past experienced experience disinvestment, meaning the housing stock has not you know, been kept up to its original um, standards when it was initially built 
uh, perhaps there has there's been a lack of commercial investment. And then, and most often it's associated with um, central city neighborhoods, although you can have gentrification, you know, in, in say, for example, in um, semi-rural areas or in, you know, particularly uh, related to tourism. Uh, but, you know, in most cases it's associated with central city neighborhoods. And so the process of gentrification is when those patterns I just described start to reverse and you start to see um, higher socioeconomic status individuals moving into these neighborhoods. You also start to see uh, more investment, you know, perhaps commercial investment in these neighborhoods. And so the, the, the character and the socioeconomic conditions in the neighborhood start to change. More affluent people start to move into the, into the neighborhood. Uh, poorer people are less likely to move into the neighborhood. So you know, the, the demographics of the population start to change. The local retail economy may also change as well. Um, it, sometimes it, it, this can also occur in former manufacturing areas where there's not so much of a shift in terms of uh, population demographics, but more in terms of uses. So you could have a formerly manufacturing district that the factories close down and leave and it turns into more of a residential district. And so that's a type of gentrification that's actually quite common, but doesn't necessarily involve a, a population shift in the sense that there weren't that many people living there in the first place. So when it comes to gentrification, and I think we can get a little bit into this because you did mention it and talk about it in your Washington Post article. I think sometimes people don't fully understand how it operates. So can you go over some of the major and more common misconceptions of gentrification? Well, I think um, what I would say is, you know, what I described is a very broad overview of gentrification. And so within that, it can take many different forms. And so... Um, I think part of what happens is, is that when people talk about you know, a gentrification that could be describing a particular scenario, but doesn't necessarily describe all scenarios. So, for example, people quite often uh, um, associate gentrification in terms of just being about race, you know, whites coming in and replacing, you know, say relatively poor blacks or Latinos. Um, so that's one, and that's quite common in some places, um, but not always. Sometimes you could have both, um, it could be middle-class African-Americans, for example, who are um, perhaps unwittingly or not intentionally, but um, ultimately playing the role of gentrifiers. Um, they have more money, they might be investing in housing, uh, supporting more upscale businesses. Um, and then you could also have Whites, you know, you know, working class white neighborhoods that experience gentrification from other whites. Um, and indeed, the term was initially used in in London, where, you know, everyone, most people at that time, particularly were white. And so um, the term, the, the racial connotation, for example, while accurate in some instances, is not necessarily, you know, you could have gentrification without that racial turnover. Um, so I think that would be one example. And I also mentioned when I was defining it, you know, gentrification could involve very little residential turnover at all because it could involve a neighborhood that was formerly manufacturing, for example, and uh, now it's become residential. So, you know, on a, so for example, the Soho district of, of New York City was, you know, formerly 
uh, manufacturing. Um, and so that is now more of an upscale, trendy area. Uh, the manufacturing has, has long left decades ago. Uh, um, but that's an example of that type of change without the pipe necessarily being a big shift in the population because it was a primarily manufacturing area to begin with. So that's another, um, I think that would be another example I, w- I would point to. So we just spoke about misconceptions regarding gentrification and how it's often painted in a negative light. And I'll admit I'm one of those people. Um, I've often viewed gentrification through a more negative lens. But what I appreciated most about your work is that it made me take a step back and reflect on some of my assumptions. For instance, you mentioned that displacement doesn't always happen and you use the industrial neighborhood context as an example of when gentrification does not result in displacement. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that um, within the context of black and lower income residential neighborhoods. Those are typically the context that we think of when we think of gentrification. So what I want to know is, is displacement a huge issue or not a huge issue within the context of lower income and or black residential areas? Well, you know, I guess I would also I would say we should first uh, define what we mean by displacement. So uh, there's displacement. Um, probably the most commonly held view of displacement would be perhaps it's the most commonly held view. I don't know, but sometimes when people talk about displacement, they mean you know someone's living in in a home, or maybe they're renting, and then as the neighborhood changes, the landlord decides, well, I'm going to double your rent. Um, and then the person can't afford to stay there and they have to move. So that's probably the mo- that's like uh, direct displacement. Uh, so, so there's that. And so when gentrification occurs, um, that may happen, but that may not always be that widespread for us, you know, a number of reasons. So for one, people could own their home, for example. So if you're a homeowner and your neighborhood is gentrifying, you know, you are the landlord, so so there's not that um, risk of the landlord raising your rent. Uh, and indeed, in those instances, people who own their homes stand to gain a windfall, right? Because they might see their property values rise significantly, and they, you know they might decide to cash out to sell their house and move somewhere else. And so you see that happening some in some neighborhoods, neighborhoods in Brooklyn, for example, neighborhoods in Washington D.C in Oakland, California. And so that that's an example of the neighborhood changing. Um, you know, it could be, for example, a, a predominantly black neighborhood in Brooklyn, white person comes along, offers them, you know, a million dollars for the brownstone. They sell and move, you know, back down south. Um, that's contributing to the demographics of the neighborhood changing. But um, yeah, I wouldn't really, I don't know if, I wouldn't really say that person was necessarily displaced, right? Because they earned a windfall. Uh, so that's an example whereby gentrification could be happening and someone not being displaced. Also, some other instances, particularly you know, in New York City, research I've done in New York City, um, New York City residents are fortunate that we, they have not torn down much of their public housing. And some of it is in really what are now desirable locations. You know, they're in gentrifying neighborhoods close, for example, close to downtown Brooklyn, um, close to downtown Manhattan, near the west side of Manhattan. Uh, and so that those are, not, or in Harlem, for example, 
those are other examples. People have you know access to subsidized housing, and so even though the neighborhood is undergoing gentrification, they're kind of protected from uh, rents increasing. And you know, New York City also has rent regulation, right? So people that limits how much landlords can raise their rent. So gentrification can happen, and depending on the person's housing circumstances, they may be able to stay. You know, even if the much of the other housing stock around it is rising, um, and then there's the other, another type of gentrification that I think is oftentimes associated. I'm sorry, another type of displacement that is often associated with gentrification is what might be called more indirect displacement, and that could be an example. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, Spike Lee gave probably a, a well-known inter- wasn't an interview. I think he was a a guest at a lecture or whatever, but he was pointing out that people, the way he put it was that, you know, people were coming in and bogarting the neighborhood and in fact, taking over the neighborhood. And this came out in the research I was doing as well. So for example, people were used to maybe cooking out in the park when the weather was warm. And, um, you know, technically that's against the, the, the park rules, but you know, no one ever really enforced it. But when people, um, as the neighborhood started to gentrify, people, the newcomers, for whatever reason, thought that was a nuisance. And so they started to you know, ask for the police to enforce that law. Um, at the same time, they also, the, the, the people who were coming into the neighborhood were more likely, it was more popular amongst them, to have their dogs running around in the park, right? Um, now, without you know, you know, casting judgment on which is preferable or not, but that's definitely a difference in terms of values, in terms of what, uh, you know, one group of people might prefer to use a park for one use and another group for another use. So which is allowed? And so if you've been living there using the park one way and new people come in and they're using their power to uh, enforce the rules to allow the park to be used in a different way, you kind of feel less welcome in your own neighborhood. You feel less like this is your neighborhood. And so there's that type of displacement, which doesn't always necessarily lead to people leaving, but they might leave. They might be less likely to feel like, you know, well, why am you know, do I want to stay in this community? This is not really my neighborhood. So there's that type of um, displacement as well that often happens in gentrifying neighborhoods. So that's a long answer to your question about does displacement always occur? with gentrification, and I'd say yes, no, um, no it doesn't always occur, um, particularly the direct displacement regarding someone you know, being evicted from the house or the landlord jacking up their rent, but there could be other types of displacement, indirect displacement that might happen. Um, and so some, when you'd say, are people being displaced, it kind of really depends on what you're talking about, what type of displacement specifically are you talking about? Um, and that, so that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, admittedly a long-winded answer to your question, but I think you kind of have to unpack it to um, get at the most accurate answer. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Before we get into some of those things, one other thing that also interested me was the positives of gentrification, which from my experience, we really don't discuss a lot. Thinking about how I traditionally view gentrification, how others have discussed it, how they feel about it in conversation, we kind of always have this racial ideal about it, right? Uh, Pretty much 
white folk are coming into black communities or communities of color. But in your work, you highlight how the black middle class or black young professionals can also contribute to gentrification by moving it into an environment. They're also responsible for gentrification process or a part of that gentry population. And I know this was also addressed somewhat in Wilson, William Julian Wilson's work in the 80s, although it was controversial. He did discuss things like black flight or how the black middle class and upper class left inner city communities. But thinking of it from that perspective, with black people moving back into the community, I personally think that can be looked at in a positive light, maybe empowering these communities once again. Many of these communities have been disinvested and may now be observing the return of black doctors, lawyers, teachers, etc. And if this demographic is moving back into the community, maybe this can be viewed as a benefit for black community for black communities. So you know, even youth can have more access to people in these occupations and their networks may broaden and can open a door to new opportunities. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, uh, how it's not always about white people coming in and being the main primary focal point of the gentry population, but also how black folks can contribute to gentrification. And can this really be seen as a benefit? Yeah, sure. Um, I think what you're saying is true. I think um, in some instances you, you do see it coming from blacks. And, and in fact, there's been some research done. There's been some scholars um, such as Keisha Moore, for example, or Monique Taylor. They've done research in Harlem and Philadelphia. Um, there's been some studies in Chicago and Bronzeville where um, part of what happens, what happened is uh, some black middle class some of the black middle class looked at neighborhoods like Harlem or Bronzeville and Chicago to have a you know rich historical tradition and you know looked at the way they were say in the 1980s and thought you know well why can't you know Harlem of today today now I'm talking about you know this is in the 1990s uh, why can't it be like it was in you know say the 1920s or the 1940s when you know you had the Harlem Renaissance, or when you had you know um, well-known musicians that would go there to play, and and, and what have you, uh, where you know it was a mecca for the black intelligentsia. Same thing with other black neighborhoods around the city. I, I mean, sorry, around the country. And so the black middle class, some might think, well, you know, if I move here and I, you know, I um, rehabilitate a house, if I, um, you know, put my kids in the local school and become active in, in the local school, if I open a store or what have you, that could help rebuild the neighborhood and re um, help the neighborhood reclaim its former glory. So you actually see some black people that, with that intention of coming back and thinking of it as a positive, um, thinking of it in terms of positive, a positive way and thinking about you know, how they can help um, revitalize the community. Um, and that's, that's been, I think that has happened in a number of black neighborhoods around the country. Um, now, you know, in, in practice, um, so, you know, sometimes they could be a, become a victim of their own success because then, you know, if, if the neighborhood does start to improve and particularly if you're in a city where housing prices are expensive it will start to attract people who 
um, aren't necessarily thinking about, you know, reclaiming any uh, glory of the neighborhood. They're just looking for an affordable place to live. So there, there's that mix. Um, and then you also, you also see sometimes developers trying to profit off of uh, the neighborhood's former glory. So for example, in uh, Washington, D.C., yeah, along the U Street corridor, which was formerly, um, you know, so the, the, the center of uh, the music scene in Washington, D.C. in the early part of the 20th century, you see them building new condos with names like the Duke Ellington, for example, or something like that, or the Count B.C. or something. Um, so they're trying to, you know, um, get buy, get buyers or potential tenants to think about the area's historic glory and using that as a drawing card to, to attract people. Um, so, yes, I think that um, I'm kind of going on and on, but I guess I would sum up to say, yes, the black middle class can intentionally sometimes try to play the role that you're describing, you know, thinking about their presence as a way of helping to stabilize the commu these communities. And uh, of course, you know, sometimes they're just looking for affordable housing or, you know, or, or investing in what they see as a good deal. Um, I have uncles that bought, they grew up in Harlem, but, you know, they, like many other blacks, as a um, guy became older, you know, came, uh, acquired more income, they moved to the outer boroughs. And then in the 1980s, they saw they could buy property in Harlem really cheaply. And so, you know, one of them did that and moved back to Harlem. And, you know, in his case, I don't know that he was thinking that, you know, he's going to be, you know, recreating Harlem's glory or anything like that. I think he just saw it as, wow, yeah, I could get a brown stone here for really cheap, so let me buy it. So, um, I, and, you know, I don't even know if he, at the time, he even, didn't, you know, heard of the term gentrification. <laughs> to be honest, but, you know, he would be someone that would be considered middle class. He had moved out of Harlem. He grew up there, though, right? But then he was living in Queens for probably 20 or 30 years. And now he decided, well, I'm going to come back. So, you know, if you just look at the his demographic profile, you say, oh, this is a middle income black person who's buying a brownstone in Harlem. He's contributing to the gentrification. Uh, although, you know, though, like I said, he was someone who grew up there and probably didn't, you know, see himself as trying to gentrify anything. Uh, so, so it can, it can be kind of, you know, people don't necessarily fit into the neat boxes that we like to classify them as, but certainly it can be the case that black people can, um, and this could happen also in uh, Latino communities as well, can play a role in starting or perpetuating the gentrification process. That's very interesting. Um, a few years ago, I actually conducted research on the relationship between gentrification and school redistricting and school closings. And what I found most interesting in my data is that black middle class parents who moved into gentrifying neighborhoods viewed it as their responsibility to help. They often sent their children to the neighborhood schools so that they could be a resource to the schools and a source of social capital for other individuals in the neighborhood. But, you know, based on the literature, based on, you know, some other findings, the overall trend suggests that gentrification often stops at the schoolhouse door in the sense that white middle class families who do have did not use the schools in the neighborhood that they chose to gentrify. 
So what are your thoughts on that? And are there any particular domains of life that are more likely to see positive changes associated with gentrification? For instance, you know, in some of your work, you mentioned policing and amenities. Um, So yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question. So I I think with the schools, I would say it it probably varies from place to place and the timing could be an issue. I think, you know, a lot of times what happens is um, the schools are kind of a lagging indicator. So other dimensions of the neighborhood may change before the school does. But, um, you know, I have seen some instances where the schools have changed. Um, so it, it just may take longer. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes another place could be employment opportunities, right? Um, I don't I don't think they necessarily are, are necessarily high paying jobs. They're going to help lift a lot of people out of poverty. But, you know, if you have significant um, investment and, you know, more stores are opening up, it could provide um, entry level jobs at at least. So I I do think there has been some evidence that that is occurring in some places that there are some entry level jobs um, that may be increasing in, in some gentrifying neighborhoods. I think the track record on crime is kind of mixed. Right? I mean, I think sometimes I think I think uh, you know, looking at New York City, for example, I, I think more of what happened is uh, crime started to go down, and then people started to say, "Hey, I can move there now. It's seen as being relatively safe." Um, so it's, I'm not so sure that the gentrification you know, led to the crime decline as opposed to the, the reverse. And of course, the, the two could feed off of each other. You know, once more people start moving into the neighborhood, it's more investment and what have you, uh, that could lead to further reductions in crime. Um, certainly, I mean, if you look at the um, physical conditions of the housing, you know, so if, uh, I'm most familiar with New York City, but you look at neighborhoods like Central Harlem, for example, Lower East Side, where you had a lot, a lot of abandoned buildings, and you know, at one point, the city probably owned about sixty percent of the properties in Central Harlem, uh, and a lot of them were abandoned. So that, I mean, that's not good for anybody, right? Those are abandoned buildings, are eyesores, they're um, fire hazards, public health hazards. You know, there's no one maintaining the buildings. Um, they can be become hotspots for drug activity and other criminal activity. Uh, so with with the gentrification, that drew in people to, I mean, the city itself rehabilitated many of the buildings, but uh, private investors were willing to invest money also to help rehabilitate the buildings as well. So that, I think that's a positive. And I think you might see that in some other uh, neighborhoods as well, where, you know, you had abandoned buildings um, that were just, you know, dilapidated eyesores that were just sitting there. Um, you know, people could certainly argue about the way some of the buildings were redeveloped or, or, for, or more affordable housing should have been built. But nonetheless, I would say the reduction in abandonment. And again, in many older cities, that's a re- been a real problem. Um, you know, you look at a city like Detroit, for example, or Baltimore, they're still grappling with that. Um, New York has been able to, for example, pretty much solve that problem, you know, in part due to gentrification and and some of the neighbors that were experiencing significant abandonment. Yeah, when I'm thinking about what comes first, the chicken or the egg, especially when we talk about crime and from a criminological perspective, 
I do think that crime rates began to drop globally. And so as a result, locally within these communities, crime rates began to drop as well. And I think that when crime rates drop, these communities become more attractive to people who are looking for housing or potential renters. But also even in your book, There Goes the Hood, two of the common themes where it came to highlighting the benefits of a community. Many community members believe that benefits of gentrification were either increased police presence and also more supermarkets or better supermarkets. So they didn't have to travel these long journeys to get fresh produce and fresh food. But mainly focusing on the policing aspect, my question is, is it really a benefit, especially in communities of color? Because even in your book, although a couple of residents did see this increased police presence as a benefit, on the other hand, others in their interviews said that police were there, but not actually there to protect them, mainly the black residents. And I think that may be true. Increased police presence, usually in communities of color, doesn't always mean it's going to work, especially for original residents and especially for residents of colors. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Do you think with increased police presence, is it wholeheartedly a benefit or is that just a perspective of the residents in these communities like Harlem and similar neighborhoods? Just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a, well, I think it depends on who you ask, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. So probably, you know, if uh, if if you are, uh, certainly if you're on the younger side and you're a male, young black male, probably have mixed feelings about it at, at a minimum because a lot of times the increased police presence is also associated with with more harassment, you know? And I saw I saw some of that some, in, in the neighborhood. I was one of the neighborhoods I did research in, you know, where the residents were complaining about young black men. There was a group of young black men who, who were congregating on the corner. And, and this was at a, a neighborhood meeting that they invited representatives from various city agencies, including the police. And, uh, you know, they were asking the police basically to harass these men and so, yeah, I think, you know, we that we know from various stories, um, if you're a black male, you probably I know I experienced it, you know, when I was younger, you probably experienced it yourself. So I think, you know, if, if you're a young black male, I think at a minimum, you're going to have mixed feelings, because even if the crime is going down and, and, you know, you're statistically you're safer, you also know you're probably going to be harassed more. Um, for other people, other people might be less ambivalent about. It. They might just say, "Yeah, I'm glad." Uh, I mean, not to say that women don't get harassed, also, but um, you know, men commit most of the crimes and are the ones who are more stringently under police surveillance. And so, I think, and particularly younger men, um, probably. You know, I notice as I get older, I don't, don't get harassed as much. Um, so, yeah, I think, and probably, I would imagine, if if you're a white. You probably might feel uh, feel that um, you know the increased police presence is a positive thing. There's a little negative downside to it. So my view, I think you know, in general, I I think the data suggests that the crime started going down before you had really widespread gentrification. At least in New York City, it might be a little bit different in some other cities, but at least in New York City, I think the crime actually started declining before gentrification really took off 
at least particularly in neighborhoods like Harlem or Bedford-Stuyvesant. Um, I think the decline in crime and a variety of other factors led to more people moving into these neighborhoods. Um, now that the gentrification that occurred in the later part of the 90s, early 2000s, might have contributed to further crime declines, but I'm not so sure. And I think for the people living there, you know, no doubt they benefit from less crime. Um, the, but the way the it was executed, I think has you know probably many people have a mixed have mixed feelings about that. I've seen some people liken gentrification to colonization. Um, to what extent do you think the emotional reactions and negative perceptions of gentrification are linked to fears about the outsider coming in to take from the disadvantage um, and to take what? Old timers in a neighborhood believe is rightfully theirs. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and you know, in, in that regard, people people's fear of gentrification is, or yeah, is not different from many other people's um, reactions to their neighborhood being invaded by a different group, right? So, I mean, you look back the history of you know white flight, you know, black person moves in the neighborhood. White people are up in arms, or they move away. Right? That's a similar uh, reaction. They they fear their neighborhood is being changed. Um, now they they're driven by perhaps different motives, racism, but it's still this fear of change. You look at, you know, I I teach plant urban planning. I'm an urban planner, so this notion of uh, nimbyism or not in my backyard. People don't want, you know, you go around New York City, you, the city, you try to build something significant, people don't want change in their neighborhood, right? Whether it's new people coming in, a new office tower, um, you know, whatever it is, people, that's what, why the term not in my backyard, they don't, people don't want things built in their, you know, they're, they're resistant to change. There's even another term called banana, um, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody, right? I mean, so people don't want, you know, you go to the suburbs, you know, you propose whatever, people are resistant to change. So that now the, the way they, that resistance manifests itself will vary from community to community. So in many low income, you know, black neighborhoods, it's a fair gentrification. And, you know, some white neighborhood, it might be a fear of, you know, low income people coming in or in another neighborhood, it might be a fear of oh, too much density. We don't want more traffic. We don't want this. We don't want that, you know. So, so in that regards, it's almost not, it's not surprising. Gentrification is, does change the neighborhood. So even though some of the changes we might say are positive, um, it's still this resistance to change that is common with folks across various types of neighborhoods. And so that regards, it's not different. And I think, I think in the case of gentrification, it's manifesting itself in part in due to fears of displacement you know, fears of, you use the term colonization, yeah, this, this feeling that um, the white people are going to take over the neighborhood. And in some instances, I think that has happened. The neighborhood, ha or they're certainly, they're, it appears that they're trying to do that. I mean, when people come into the neighborhood, they want amenities and services that meet their needs. And, and that's, um, yeah, that's to be expected, right? You go somewhere, you, you expect, you live there, you. Now I want things that 
serve what you need. Even you know that even without them having any you know uh, malevolent um, intentions or motives, it's just natural that people are going to want things that want to meet their needs, and those those might be different from the people who are already living there. So, um, so the net result could be people feeling like you know one, there's this resistance to change, and two. The change is going to be for the people coming in and not for me. And, you know, let's face it, historically and even to this day, um, if there's a conflict in terms of needs and power between whites and blacks, blacks typically end up or white or black or rich people or middle class people versus poor people, poor people, blacks typically end up on the short end of the stick. So I think that's what you're seeing, um, in spite of the fact that, you know, some of these changes, you might say, well, these are positive. So why are people um, resistant to that? So this next question, before we get to our final question of policy recommendations, when I read your work or read your work, you know, and I know all you do is not just highlight the benefits of gentrification, but I would like your insight on this, because being a black male and even in conversations I've had about gentrification, We've always looked at gentrification from a negative perspective, things like white invasion and stuff like that. So when you highlight these kind of findings where you say that it may not all be bad and there may be some benefit to gentrification, how is that generally received? I mean, have there been criticisms of your work or this perspective overall? If so, what has been your response? And also, just as you, as a black man, were conducting these research and reporting these findings, was there any kind of inner turmoil or conflictions that you had while doing that? I'm just curious about just your overall feelings and, and, and process during this. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, so I think um, the uh, so some of it grew out of, you know, in terms of the way I'm portraying it, but when I interviewed people who were living in the neighborhoods, that was what they were saying. And so, yeah, I think um, some people are, are, are going to either be ambivalent or not necessarily have such a negative view. Um, I think that's certainly the case. And I, I think uh, probably those individuals are not going to be as vocal as people who are really upset about what's happening. Um, you know, when I started going into this research, I, I think I t typically had a more negative view, too, or didn't or certainly would expect everyone living in the neighborhood to be opposed to what was happening. Um, but as I started to do the research, I started to encounter other evidence. So uh, I, I think, you know, when you talk to people, um, you know, it really depends, right? I mean, I have a friend, for example, his family bought a brownstone in Park Slope, Brooklyn, like in the early 1970s or late 1960s, right? And, you know, the house is appreciated, who knows, 100 times or whatever. Maybe that's exaggerating, 10 times or whatever. Um, it worked out well for them, you know? So th that sentiment, that's not uncommon, you know? In many neighborhoods, people bought houses in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the houses were not, um, you know, they had to struggle to put together the money to be able to afford the house. Uh, the house didn't appreciate much due to, you know, redlining, disinvestment. And, you know, now it has become a valuable asset. I mean, I think for someone like that, they're at a minimum, they're probably going to be ambivalent about 
the gentrification because on the one hand, it's, it's definitely increasing their financial position. It's increasing their wealth. And, you know, some of the other benefits that we, that we have talked about, improved amenities, more stores, better shopping opportunities, um, you know, more entry-level jobs. So I think um, going into the research, I you know, years ago, I think I assumed it would be a more um, overwhelming negative sentiment towards it. As I started to do the research, I saw there could be some positives and spoke to people who expressed that to me themselves. And so I think now my view is more nuanced. You know, when you talk about gentrification, it really depends on who you ask. What, what is their position in the community? Where, you know, are they a homeowner? Are they a renter? Uh, do they have subsidized housing? Are they paying market rent housing? Are they themselves upwardly mobile? So if, if, if rents do go up or as the neighborhood becomes more affluent, are they in a position to take advantage of that? Or are they going to be excluded? You know, can their kids benefit from <clears throat> if the school does change in a way or not. So I, I, I think it depends on that particular person's circumstances, you know? And so I think I have a much more nuanced view as a result of my research. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, I, so I, I guess I don't feel conflicted in that sense because I think I have a nuanced view recognizing that, you know, some people benefit, some people don't. Some people both benefit and are harmed in some ways. Right. And um, in terms of pushback, yeah, I guess I haven't gotten as much pushback as, as I might have anticipated getting. Um, but there have been some crit crit criticisms um, in particular. You know, as I mentioned, the term gentrification was actually coined in, in the Great Britain. And so there's been a lot of scholarship, probably more written about gentrification in, in Europe particularly England than in the U.S. And they tend to be, um, the European scholars tend to be more um, ideological in a sense, writing from a sort of post, uh, 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 not post, a um, sort of a Marxist view of gentrification, right? So they tend to view it more in terms of class conflict where the gentry are um, um, invading the spaces of, of the, the working class and they see it you know, in Marxian terms, as part of this dialectical conflict between the classes. And so their views of gentrification tend to be, you know, there's really not much room for nuance or, yeah, there's good and bad as well. It's a class war and the, and the, and the proletariat or whatever you want to call them, <laughs> they're being dominated and threatened to be erased by the class interest of the gentry. So... There's definitely a large uh, body of work, um, not all European and British, but, you know, they definitely have dominated that perspective on gentrification that's very negative, doesn't tend to, there's no room for, you know, it's like if you're fighting a war with someone, you, you know, you're not going to point out all their positive aspects, right? It just, <laughs> so, so there definitely is that that's out there. And, you know, there have been, um, they have been critical of some of my work because I think, they see it as any acknowledgement of any positive or, or what have you is something to say, well, I'm supporting the capital, the interest of capital, you know, as opposed to the, the working class or the proletariat. 
So that there is definitely that. No, no, that actually makes sense. And it, it also speaks to one, the importance of context, uh, since the U.S. context is very different from the British context. I've read some of that work. And while I found it interesting, it didn't necessarily speak to U.S. dynamics. Um, Second, I think your response speaks to the importance of researchers and consumers of research or news uh, to be open to disconfirming information when we go into our work or we go into learning about new and old things. You came into this particular work with beliefs about gentrification, but you were open to evidence that refuted your beliefs. And I, I think we could all learn from that example. Finally, I think there is some importance of nuance because very rarely is anything black and white. There are often shades of gray. Therefore, your response was perfect. Moving forward, we've discussed both positives and negatives associated with gentrification. In wrapping up, I want to know your thoughts on how to maximize benefits and minimize the harm caused by gentrification. Do you have any particular policy recommendations that might better help us balance the good with the bad? Yeah, well, I think um, one one of the big challenges with gentrification is um, the rising housing costs. And so I think any policy that takes that into consideration and attempts to um, ameliorate some of that is a positive. So, for example, um, New York City has an, an inclusionary housing policy whereby what they did was they said, well, we're going to increase the density, allow the allowable density in certain neighborhoods, you know, by changing the zoning. But all the new developments have to include uh, some affordable housing. Now, some people are critical of the policy because they don't think it's providing enough hou- affordable housing or it's um, the, the affordable housing is not affordably enough. And I think you know, those are valid criticisms. Uh, nonetheless, I think that's a, the type of approach, you know, in general, trying to think about that, you know, whether, you know, you certainly could tweak it to provide more subsidies to make it more affordable or what have you. But as opposed to just, you know, uh, allowing a development to occur and letting the chips fall where they may, you know, the city here is acknowledging that this is likely to create an affordable housing a problem. Um, and again, you know, the criticism could, could be made that they're not doing enough or they're not doing it as effective a manner as they could. But it is a recognition that, you know, gentrification could increase housing prices and price people out of their homes. So, you know, something like that. Um, I've also have advocated for or suggested in the past that, you know, when when neighborhoods gentrify and property values do rise, you could try to set aside some of that increase in property values to target uh, affordable housing. Um, Cities do that for infrastructure projects, for example. So, for example, uh, the west side of Manhattan, whereby the city built the uh, extended the number seven subway line the city anticipated that that extension of the subway line would increase property values in that neighborhood. And so they took some of the um, increase in the property values and used that to pay for the extension of the subway line. You know, a similar thing could be done in terms of affordable housing if, if the city is anticipating gentrification, increasing property values in the neighborhood 
they could take some of the increase in the property taxes associated with that rise in property values and target it towards affordable housing. Um, there's also on the other side, this issue of I'm talking about indirect displacement where people feel like they're being pushed out of the neighborhood, not necessarily for housing reasons, but because the, um, con the um, character of the neighborhood is changing and people are perhaps demanding differences in services and amenities that don't necessarily meet their needs. And I think for that, the cities can do something, but I think it, it, it might better come from the community itself, right? So residents have to be um, organized, right? They have to be able to collectively articulate their needs and their desires in a way that will make uh, you know, power brokers recognize and grapple with their, their, what, their, what they want. Um, so whether it's through forming uh, community development corporations or other types of, or it could be direct protests or what have you, but essentially the community has to organize, has to become organized in a way that they can articulate and say, well, no, we don't want to stop cooking out in the park. We should be allowed to do that. It's not harming anybody. You know, if there is an ordinance on the books, let's repeal it or whatever. Um, you know, we don't, we, we don't mind the police presence, but we don't want them harassing our young men. You know, we want them to, you know, police in this fashion or whatever. So the community needs to be able to come together and be cohesive, organized, and be able to articulate its needs and wants. Um, that way, people who live there don't feel like they're being pushed out by outsiders who are coming in and imposing their view of what the neighborhood should be like on their community. No, I think there's definitely truth to that. So my very last question going along those lines, I host a bi-weekly group in Newark for guys who, you know, are in and out the system. They're typically college age, black males. The age range is maybe from 18 to 30. But time and time again, when I have these conversations in group or we have conversations in group, gentrification is commonly highlighted. You know, they may not use the word gentrification, but they will say things like, you know, on this block, they're building a building. It's expensive new apartments. Like, how can anybody afford this? Or they say, you know, on this block, they just built a Whole Foods and all this organic stuff. Like, what's going on? And then they'll also continue to say things like, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to kick us out. They're trying to push us out because we can't even afford to live here anymore. And I know Newark has, I know, no, I know Newark has some regulations. And I think it changed a bit last spring because before the change, landlords had to put about $5,000 per unit for renovation in order to raise the rent by 2%. But now I think the landlord can do it by just putting a certain percentage of their yearly profit towards a building and then can raise rent, which makes it a bit easier for landlords. But my question is, what would you say to these males that are saying this, that are living this, that are seeing this, that are feeling that they're getting pushed out, what would you say to them? What advice would you give to them if they were sitting in front of you right now? How would you tell them to combat this and address it? Yeah, I mean, I would encourage them to become engaged with organizations or, or in their community, or they may have to form their own organizations, you know, depending on what the conditions are like in their neighborhood. and you know, coming together with people, other people in the community and speaking out and saying, you know, um, we want the, you know, whatever development is happening, 
you know, we want to see it happen in a way that uh, will benefit residents who are living there now. And that might involve <coughs> meeting with the local state, um, I'm sorry, city representative, meeting with the mayor's office, the mayor's planning office, or what have you. Um, you know, without, without knowing the specifics of that particular case, but, you know, when development occurs like that, quite often in these cities, um, the city may be giving the developer some type of tax break. The city may be changing the zoning in some way. Um, so with that, that gives the city an opportunity to ask for the developer to do something in return for the community, right? And so the city, though, you know, the mayor's office, whoever, they might think, well, this is good enough for the community or these are the benefits, but the community has to, you know, be able to voice its concerns. And, you know, it could be, you know, I'm not saying it's a panacea, it could be some people in the community who think it's great. And so, you know, they do support it. But I think the, the way they want to get involved is, you know, get become actively engaged um, with their local representative at the city level, um, engage with the mayor's office, find out what's happening with the development, uh, I know, you know, in New York, when developments like that happen, as I said, um, if the city is rezoning a property, that gives the community an opportunity to intervene and say, hey, you know, the city is giving doing this for the developer, so we can ask the developer to do this for us. And so the city, which is the political entity, it's, the city is going to respond to political pressure. Are there politicians who are pressuring, going to pressure the mayor to do this? for their community or not. Um, the local politician may not be aware that these young men feel like they're being pushed out, right? So if they're not organized, if they're not engaged, the local politician has no way of, you know, apparently the local politician is not coming to them and asking them, well, how do you feel about this? Um, so that would be my advice. And I just want to thank you for taking out the time, Dr. Freeman, to come talk to us about your work on gentrification. I think a lot of our listeners will definitely learn a lot about justification. And if you want to learn more, definitely check out Dr. Freeman's work. You can also email us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up at bhdpodcast on our social media sites. And then we'll try to connect you, connect with you, help you out, do whatever we can to be a resource for you all. But thank you, Dr. Freeman, for joining us today. Thank you. Okay, thanks for having me. So, Dad, what you think? Um, I thought it was an interesting um, interview. I think, um, I, I guess the, like I kind of mentioned in the interview, like the importance of like this confirming information. And I'll be honest, when I went into uh, the interview, I had just read, you know, his Washington Post article about, you know, the five myths of gentrification. And, you know, I, I had to, go into the interview like open to like you know information that was you know potentially contrary to just how I feel about gentrification um because I think there's a difference between how we feel 
and the actual facts is kind of our motto, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> facts, facts, not feelings. Yeah. And so I went in with a lot of feelings, but I feel like I came out with a, a conversation that is kind of like, yes, we cannot forget the nuance. We cannot forget the gray. So, you know, it's a lesson for me. Listeners, like I always say, I'm open to learning, too. I'm not perfect. So, yeah, no, I mean, I could, I agree. You know, I think one is that I generally I know what gentrification is, maybe a little bit of work in passing, whether I'm teaching like intro to sociology courses, stuff like that. But as far as getting in depth about the topic, no, I really haven't. And so I think I was also a product of just the general conversation around gentrification, uh, viewing it as negative, viewing it as white invasion in these spaces, viewing it as displacement. Which is all true, you know, it happens. But I also, when I was reading, I was like, hmm, you know, is this, are there really benefits to this? Can there be benefits to it? And I think that nuance is important because I think a lot of the times we do think black and white, it's one way or the other. Uh, but there are certain successes and benefits too, especially if you are a black homeowner and now, this gentry process, gentrifying process, you know, increases the value of your home. Uh, if you have kids, right, on one aspect, and you have had a hard time finding fresh produce and fresh meat, and it's been a lot of processed food, well, that increased the health of the benefit, uh, the, the health benefits of your community too, right? And that's something that we do want to see. Um, you know, I think there is debate as far as Yes, I think it can increase a certain job opportunities, but then it's like, okay, who can get these jobs if they are based on the traditional job measurements, such as education and, and things of that nature? Of course, if a large portion of the demographics in the community doesn't, don't have a lot, a lot of education, they won't be qualifying and getting these jobs. Um, which can be also prob problematic too. But I think what I also took away from this the most is the fact that, uh, you know, how gentrifiers aren't always white. Uh, really stood out to me um, how and I, and I think about my own personal experience like even you know Kristen and I last year when we were moving we were like figuring out where we wanted to live and you know we talked we talked about places like Newark etc but then a part of us too we were like we know gentrification is happening out there but then we were like hmm we really don't want to move out there because we don't want to take part in the gentrification process we don't want to be responsible for pushing people out right because we're moving in um, so we looked elsewhere but now when I think about it too it can serve when you change that perspective and looking at it as a benefit. I think, you know, if you're careful as far as what you do and how you do it, but we can use it to re-empower a lot of these communities, right? Where a lot of the conversation is there's not enough role models, right? Uh, there's not enough teachers or doctors or lawyers or this kind of black intelligentsia within these communities. And so if that demographic begins to move back into the communities, then that can really, really strengthen the communities where we can be more uh, self-reliant. We don't have to worry on outsourcing or sending our kids to other schools or, you know, finding, finding, looking, still looking, searching so hard to find role models that are in these particular fields like engineering or whatever business, right? If they're coming to the community, then it's going to be an easier access point to the youth there who are, who can have other options now as far as what they can do and how they can do it. Um, and this is not uncommon within, like I said, I'm living in a Jewish community right now. I said this before on this podcast and that's what they do, right? They keep everything in house. They keep their intellectuals in house. They keep their business people in the house. They keep their, their lawyers in house. They keep their teachers in house. And so all the kids here are thriving socially because 
they have it. They have access to anything they want to be. And so I think there's value to that. And I think, you know, the only hesitancy I had was just me and Kristen had was just we don't want to contribute to pushing our people out. Right. We don't want to be that. Yeah, I didn't want to um, be colonizers. Yeah, we didn't want to be the colonizers. Right? <laughs> out here getting everybody out of there. No, I say the Sweet. same thing. It's it's a question. So one of the things that I focus on in schools, because like I said, I actually have I've done research on like the relationship between gentrification and schools. And one of the things, like I said, you know, gentrification typically stops at the schoolhouse door. You know, it's not something that uh, necessarily positively impacts schools like they don't necessarily see that. And so for me, it made me think about what type of, uh, you know, kind of like would I move into one of these neighborhoods and also what type of parent would I be if I lived in like a gentrified neighborhood? Am I going to be like one of the people who, you know, kind of comes in and I see I other myself in the sense that like I'm not like the other residents. I therefore I wouldn't put my children in those schools. And I, I do feel like gentrification has the potential to you know, have really positive impacts. It, I feel like it also has the potential to integrate or, or diversify schools. But, you know, I feel like people are just really hesitant, especially around like the topic of schools. But, you know, I, I see it as the potential like to add resources. Um, but like you said, it's, it's just kind of how you do it. Because, uh, of course, you can't go in with like a savior mentality, like, oh, let me go in no and like way. save these, you know, people. And it's like recognizing the the resources and the assets that people in the community always have already as they mm -hmm. always have already have. And I, I think that's the biggest thing. Like when I've talked to people, you know, in my research or I've, I've read research, I think that is like one of the biggest gripes is the idea that. One, you're coming in, you need these big dogs to be protected from people who have always been here. Like this is our neighborhood. Um, and so I think it's just people coming in with a we're neighbors mentality rather than like, you know, it's us, the new people versus the old timers. So, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I think there's a couple of things to that, you know, uh, one with the schooling. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important aspect that should be addressed. I think a part of the reason for that is because of the usual demographics that move in or are, who are the gentrifiers, mm -hmm. um, even in his research. Right. It's usually just, uh, you know, either couples or singles. Right. Who are young professionals who are really thinking about families yet. Right. Um, and so it's it's affordable. It's close to the city. You can move in. You're getting some resources, easier commute for your job. And I really don't think, well, you know, from what he was saying, I mean, in the research, it's not this is the demographics of who generally are the gentrifiers don't have children. So I can see how that is overlooked when people are moving mm -hmm. in, because it's like, hmm, if you're coming in with kids, that's something you're definitely looking at. Like, oh, where are my kids going to go to school? How I'm going to raise them. But, you know, if it's if it's just us moving in as a couple, we're like, oh, we're good. You know, we don't need to worry about that. And I like the point you're talking about, too, about like not trying to come in and save communities. Right. I think for me, the model that I always like to use, not a model, but just the idea of how I like to go when I go into these communities. My, my goal is just to be visible. Right. That's it. Just want to go here. Just like you said, your neighbor mentality, you, you go to the neighborhood and you knock on your neighbor's door, say, hey, we just moved in. And, um, you know, I'm here if you need me or, you know, nice to meet you and keep Here's it moving. Right? Just to know that I'm here. <laughs> yeah, right. Here's some banana pudding, whatever it is. Uh, and just here I am, you know, and if you need me, you want to talk more. I'm here. Right. But I think it's just a part of just being visible because I think that's where 
from what I hear from a lot of guys, like, where are they? We don't see them. You know, how do we contact them? Or, you know, in these conversations, somebody does want to do something and want to use you as a resource. If you're visible, then it'll be easier for those changes to happen uh, for sure. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot to it. And even, again, what you said, building off what you said with the whole what the communities already have, I think that's an important part. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm pretty sure this is discussed in gentrification, but like the whole thing with crime, like, oh, because white people or whoever is moving in, crime rates are lower. Well, I think it's the fact that these communities are actually being successful as far as reinvesting back into them, where crime rates do lower, where buildings are better, where schools are starting to be better. And then that becomes attractive to people who are living outside. Right. So I think it's not that these people are coming in and saving the community. I think the, the work ha- usually already begins and then they see these changes and then it becomes more attractive and then they make it harder for those changes to continue because now it's a completely new demographic that don't have any ties to the community and don't really may not be might not care as much right about the stuff that's already in process and so like you said i think it's important if you do go to these communities is to understand the fabric of that community what are they what are the issues what has been done and making sure that you're a part of it that you're trying to understand and not really you know, damper the successes that that are already implemented, and one of the reasons why you're probably moving in there for sure. And that's I was actually gonna say that I think that was one of the I won't say surprising, but it was just kind of like you know hearing confirmation from him because I'm pretty sure he actually did say like you know you actually see some of these crime rates like lowering before these people are moving in. So it's just kind of like yeah, give credit where it's due. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, I think it's just an interesting topic in de- in general because this is it's a dynamic that's happening all over the United States. And so, like, you know, thinking about his policy recommendations, thinking about how can we do this effectively? Because we do need to reinvest in certain communities, you know, especially that have just been so long, like ignored. How can we do this the right way? And I, I think that's just my biggest thing and my biggest takeaway from the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And those of you who are in criminal justice, maybe some of you PhD students looking for some potential research topics, I think there may be some value of looking at crime trends in gentrified or gentrifying neighborhoods, um, especially when you put in race. Because I'm very curious to see, yes, there may be an increased police presence, but who are they applying that presence to, right? If it is to protect the white folk, then I think there may be an uptick in uh, the arrest and incarceration rates of people of color. And I think that's something, that's something that should be highlighted because that's not what you know we want to see, especially with all the talks what's going on with the criminal justice system now. If this is in fact true, then if we need to really highlight uh, these racial dynamics and differences when it comes to law enforcement and the criminal justice system. So, uh, you know, think about that. If anybody's a student out there, get to it before I do. Give you guys yeah. a head start. <laughs> um, other than that, as good as always, you know, appreciate y'all listening to us. And again, uh, continue to give us that feedback, feedback, feedback. Hit us up. Whether it's just topics, too, you might have in mind that you would like us to cover and get someone, let us know. The sky's the limit. Um, you know, I know there's a ton of you listening, a lot of you listening, and we want more and more feedback. Come on, just do your part and help us out and give us some insight as far as what you're looking for or who to talk to. I know. To. We, you know, we should have like a competition, actually. Like, who wants to be the 50th reviewer? Like, that is a title that you should be proud of. Like the 50th, 50th yeah. BHD podcast reviewer. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, 
We'll figure something out. Uh, we gotta, I guess we got to figure out something to motivate y'all. Don't think y'all getting money, though. But y'all get something. We just going to shout you out. You'll be famous. We'll make you a superstar. We'll shout you out. Maybe maybe we'll get you on a podcast for an episode. Maybe. Chat with us. Yeah. You know? We can do that, too. You know, that's easy. So let us know. But other than that, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for listening to us. Uh, and hopefully you learned something in this episode on gentrification. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.